Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Hello and welcome to Long Time Shorts, a new series of shorter-than-usual episodes of A Long Time in Finance, each one of which gives you a quick hit of financial history from the debt jubilee of ancient Babylon to the latest crypto calamities. We're going to look at a man called Bernie Kornfeld. Now that rings a bell. (laughs) Yes, he had... What was his famous catch line? It was something like, do you sincerely want to be rich? Do you sincerely want to be rich? It was a great catch line. Brilliant. brilliant And of course, there's only one answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) And so this was his slogan, this was his sales line. And this was essentially all he needed to build his business apart from total self-confidence and Puts ability by. to be a brilliant salesman. I don't think he was ever anything much else. But he was... So what's his background? Where did he come well, from? He was born in Brooklyn in 1927. Yeah. He did all sorts of things before stumbling upon the idea that he could sell pooled investments to punters. And at one stage, he decided that the best way of doing this, because it produced so little cost, was to concentrate on one building full of office workers, the Empire State Building. And he could go round from office to office, floor to floor, selling this stuff and on behalf of uh, his employer. But of course, he had no travel expenses and no worries about the weather He's, so it was it he was, sounds like a model employee it was brilliant really yeah. and of course he could also say oh well those people in the office upstairs have just bought some of this you know it must yeah. be good yeah so you could see how this was <laughs> and they're, a pretty they're total idiots <laughs> Pretty wonderful sales sales pitch. Um, He uh, realised this was such a good idea that he cast around and lighted on Americans, mostly servicemen, in Europe. So this is just after the Second World War? This was just after the Second War. Obviously, there were a large number of of American servicemen and other personnel in Europe Mm. at the time. And the tax rules meant that if they didn't repatriate their pay from Europe, they didn't have to pay tax on it at the time. So there was a tax angle here that he saw, and he decided to set up this business, which was essentially aimed at Americans, but it was neither controlled by the American authorities, nor by the European authorities. Oh, so So, it lived in this sort of black hole between the two worlds. So, you know, the Americans thought it was European, and the Europeans thought it was American. So it did give him rather considerable freedom just to make things up as he went along. It's what's called called in the trade an edge. (laughs) An edge, yes. And the edge he had was that he decided to charge a commission of 20% of the amount invested. 
And well, he told this... the inv- he told the investors. Oh no! I'm going to I'm going to oh, no, no. invest he... your money and take a fifth of it every year. Abs- no, no, not every year. This was the the one off then. Oh right, the upfront. Yeah, exactly. But I don't suppose this was emphasised to the uh, to the eager buyers. Right. And of that twenty percent, he paid eight and a half percent to salesmen, and of course the salesman rushed to join his enterprise. Yeah which he called Investors Overseas Services, and with the slogan, Do You Sincerely Want to Be Rich? Right, and which was really aimed at the salesman and himself well, course, rather than the investors. Absolutely. <laughs> and of course, it was brilliantly successful for them because it grew like Topsy. And this money was mostly put into funds, open-ended funds. An open-ended fund is one where you are entitled to a slice of the assets, but each time the fund is priced, then a new buyer gets new units in this fund. Mm. So it expands the size of the fund and, in theory, doesn't affect the value of each unit to you. And, of course, the great thing about it is that what really matters is getting in the money rather than any sort of tedious business of actually, actually trying to perform. So the emphasis always on an open-ended fund is getting more money in, which means essentially rewarding salesmen to try and find new punters. There was a bit of an echo of this in the case not long ago involving that man, Neil Woodford, who also had an open-ended fund where he he basically had a huge incentive to bring in as much money as he possibly could from everybody. Yes, but I... But, not uh, that he is in any way. But no, of course not. But I mean, he, you know, figure. that is how an open-ended fund works. Yeah. You know, it's so much more difficult to make the investments do well than it is to get more money in. I suppose my point is, in a thing where you collect as much money as you possibly can, there's always a risk that you get so much money... <laughs> that you can't possibly really do a good job with it. Whereas if you are stuck with a a sort of pooled, closed fund of, say, X million, that's what you've got to work with. You you live or die by the success of your investing. I think that's the point you're making. Yes, there's nowhere to hide with a closed-ended fund. An open-ended fund, there's plenty of scope for manipulation, especially if new money is coming in. And you can decide what to do with that. Yeah. So basically, I as say I'm an American serviceman, and I put in my thousand bucks, and the money goes to you as Bernie, and then you put it into various funds which you've created, or you can choose which fund. Or I say you want. I want that one and that yeah, one, but choose. there are funds, and you, and Bernie is at the centre of he controls what these funds all do. Well, obviously, he runs the management of these funds. So what so, they invest in, yeah. So you can choose which fund that you want. And they had all sorts of glamorous names. But then his masterstroke was to invent this thing that he called the Fund of Funds, which allowed the punter to get exposure to a huge variety of investments, some of which were perfectly good, some of which were essentially investments in other funds. So you were effectively adding another layer of... So more fees. More fees, more costs, exactly. But, of course, more possibility of sincerely becoming rich because someone, mm. somewhere... Someone might becoming rich. ...actually 
actually, <laughs> someone might actually do well, and they, by stroke of fortune, some of it would percolate through to you. Now, I'm I'm assuming that the marinas of the French Riviera are not jammed with the yachts of Bernie Cornfeld's customers. So, they're, no. they're presumably at some point where everyone suddenly wises up to that that all is not quite well, as rosy as they had been, and their well, sincere hopes are not going to be fulfilled. Certainly, the the yachts mostly belong to the salesman. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it was estimated that he he created over a hundred millionaires from the uh, not from the customers. sales, <laughs> not the customers. You know, it's the, where are the customers' yachts? <laughs> <laughs> we know that one. But what, yeah. so what? So when did it? How did it all go wrong? In so the um, one of the things that he did to try and sustain the underlying value of the investments was that his funds bought the rights to a huge area of Western Canada, the oil rights. And what he did was he took a very small chunk of that and sold it to another fund inside the Fund of Funds umbrella at a hugely inflated price. And then he said, ah, well, that's what this all is, the whole thing is now really worth. Right. So we're going to revalue that. And that, of course, made a big impact on the supposed net asset value until Charles Raw, who died last year. He's a journalist uh, on the Sunday Times. journalist on the Sunday Times, saw through this scam and exposed it. And that, I think, was one of the things which really started to pull the rug. But the collapse came when a whistleblower, an internal accountant, started looking at what was really going on Mm. in a very complex interlocking series of funds and and assets and discovered that essentially a lot of them were illusory. Uh, at, At that point, obviously, the game was up. So what happened to Bernie? Bernie, did, did he uh, go to prison? Did he well, yes, pay he, for his dreadful crimes? Well, yes and no. Oh. I mean, he was detained by the Swiss authorities in jail for 11 months. And then they dropped the charges and he walked away. And he was never actually prosecuted for what he did. And the amount of money that he lost to these investors was measured in low billions, which in those days was a, a good deal money. more than today's high billions but he never paid for his crimes and at some stage towards the end of his life he popped up again as a possible bidder for MGM the the movie (laughs) studios Uh, it never went anywhere and (laughs) tall tales (laughs) yes (laughs) quite (laughs) fiction speciality (laughs) and eventually died in London in 1995 how extraordinary. Not a kind of uh, classic sort of uh, moral fable where the man who does all these terrible things ends up having a, a, his comeuppance. But did he achieve his own goal, to sincere goal to become rich? <laughs> or, or did he end up dying in relative poverty? I don't think he was short of money when he died. OK. Um, so there we are. Crime so, sometimes does pay. Well, obviously it's paid for him. <laughs> That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.